Okay, friends, uh, <clears throat> the, the meaning of that chant, Namo Buddhaya, because it means uh, homage to the Buddha. But there are two meanings to the word Buddha. Of course, the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, is a historical Buddha that people normally refer to as you know, the enlightened one, and he taught the Dhamma. But on another level, the, the Buddha is, is, refers as not a person, which is like a title, like a doctor, right? See, somebody's a, so-and-so is a surgeon, or, you know, it's a specialty. So the, the, the word Buddha actually means wisdom, one who's awake. Uh, comes from the word buddhi, which means a higher or spiritual intelligence. Uh, <clears throat> and so Buddha is one who has simply had reawakened that uh, pure wisdom, that ancient wisdom of the universe, uh, and actualized it. So, but so on another level, you can see the the word. Uh, sometimes it's called the inner Buddha. So there's the external Buddha, and the internal Buddhi, or the origin of the Buddha's wisdom. And so, Namo Buddhaya, when we chant that as meditation or so. We're referencing the, the the second aspect, that the vibration of buddhaya or the vibration of wisdom, which is basically the vibration of pure awareness. Uh, that's you know within every being. That's you know the even the the essence of uh, consciousness. So, uh, anyway, I wanted to talk about the, the essential characteristics that kind of uh, distinguish uh, the teachings of the Buddha from 
uh, a lot of uh, other types of spiritual teachings and so on that you know again emphasize the the wisdom and there's three levels of wisdom uh, in the Dhamma and the first is intellectual wisdom it means the only way we learn anything is by hearing talks or hearing lectures or reading books right that's the way you learned anything in life isn't it going to school hearing what the teachers taught, reading the books, studying. That, that's the way we learn anything. So it's the same with Dhamma, uh, for the most part. And you come across the you know, a teaching of the Buddha on somebody's coffee table, you know, what's this? Oh, wow. Hmm. You know? So, uh, but <coughs> the, so there's the intellectual wisdom, which you get by hearing Dhamma talks and reading. But then there's uh, another level called the wisdom through reflection. You have to reflect on that, what you've heard and read. That means you have to think about it. Because a lot of times you read or hear things and it goes out one ear and out the other and 10 minutes later someone says, what was the talk about? Uh, mm, uh, mm, mm. <laughs> you know, they might have forgotten already because their mind wasn't concentrated. So when important words were being taught, either they were thinking about their date the next weekend or they were half asleep or whatever, or they're brooding over somebody who insulted them and they missed a few you know, important words. So when you hear the Dhamma, you have to really listen with a concentrated mind so that it can uh, uh, sort of penetrate a little deeper. So anyway, the, uh, the second level of wisdom is you reflect on what you've heard. So you hear about, let's say, the law of karma. Oh, karma, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. But you know, a lot of people really <laughs> don't think about it very deeply. So you, you reflect back on it. And, like you see all the actions that you did since you were a child, you know, telling lies or, or using bad language or uh, even when you were maybe a teenager getting drunk and doing foolish things. And all these things follow you around, you know, even experiencing uh, the effects of our unskillful actions years later, many times over. So you reflect on that and say, oh, yeah, there's consequences of our actions, right? And also the good qualities that you did, the experiencing the, the pleasant or, uh, results of you know, helping a little old lady across the street. You hear examples of that all the time, right? People helping people and then they, they get rewarded, they didn't even ask for it, but then somebody you know, gives them a huge tip or whatever it is. You know? Like the homeless guy who uh, gave his last 10 bucks for you know, to, for a gallon of gas or somebody who was stranded on the road and that person raised, you know, $300,000 on crowdfunding you know, to buy this guy a house. <laughs> so, but anyway, okay. So you reflect on the teaching or you may hear about impermanence. Oh, impermanence, you know. But then you, you got to contem you contemplate it at a deeper uh, level and it starts to make more meaning. And then finally, there's what is called 
the bhavana maya panya, or the act, the the realizations, the sort of the uh, the the opening of the mind to to get a glimpse of a non-verbal type of uh, understanding of what you previously have read about or heard or even reflected. So each of those is a kind of a deeper level of, of wisdom. So the insight meditation is, is aimed at both the second and those, the third level of wisdom. So when you meditate, you can you know, contemplate. You're you know, uh, cultivating mindfulness and wisdom then you and you start to uh, you know observe impermanence and how quickly things are changing and you you observe conditioning how you know we're just a bunch of conditioned habits reacting to this and and that uh, and even uh, suffering the idea of suffering you know, it's not just you know getting broken bones or having you know, Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, you know, but it's the suffering of the mind, you know, or uh, in the various painful mental states of not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, getting frustrated, getting bugged and irritated by things people do and see and uh, just generally, uh, you know, people are in a state of confusion about what life is, we just feel the whole world is, you know, coming in on their head, and and they're they're suffering mentally. So we already mentioned that before. Uh, <clears throat> so, anyway, the the insights that you get out of practicing, uh, you know, the pasana meditation, uh, leads to those kind of uh, deeper realizations. But the, the, the characteristics, you know, the, the Buddhist teachings of wisdom are, are uh, based upon what are called the three characteristics of all phenomena. And that is, uh, to use the Pali terms that many of you probably have heard, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, or impermanence, uh, suffering and no self. So that all the uh, conditioned dhammas, that means everything of the material world, it includes this physical body as well as the earth and everything on the earth, uh, the material world, and even our mental world, our, f- our feelings, perceptions, uh, memory, will, volition even the ego consciousness. These are constantly in a state of change and flux. And things don't last, uh, you know, even a a nanosecond. We're talking about on a kind of like a molecular uh, level, things are changing. But everything, so basically it's that understanding that everything is constantly changing. And, you know, you can observe this in meditation when, you, you know, your sensations in the body are constantly changing and then your, your thoughts and moods are constantly 
changing. You, know, you can be kind of happy w- one minute, and then a couple of minutes later, you can be kind of down in the dumps, you know, and you know, and then some time later again. So our moods and everything is is constantly changing due to the changing conditions because everything else changes, everything affects us. And nothing is stable. So that's why we, but we try to, to, to cling and stop impermanence. You know, and, and that's when we suffer by not allowing things to change. And so, you know, when you get sick, you know, why did I get sick? I was doing all these things or, you know, because, you know, that's the nature, this body is the nature to get sick, to get diseased, to get old, and eventually death. And a lot of people don't like to think about the death, because they think it's distasteful, or uh, it reminds them of what's around the corner, and they want to try to, uh, you know, avoid it. So that's why people are, you know, getting cosmetic surgeries and you want to delay the advent of decaying and and old age to hide in an illusion. But then it comes crumbling down. There's only a certain amount of facelifts, nose jobs, tummy tucks that you can do, (laughs) you know, when you start reaching 80 years old or so. (laughs) But anyway, so... This, uh, and so people suffer because of that change. They don't want things to change. And there's actually a very, the, what are called the five reflections. The Buddha said these are five things that the lay person as well as monks and nuns, every person should reflect on every day. That is, I'm in nature to get sick. I've not beyond, gone beyond uh, the potential for getting sick. I'm of the nature to get diseased. I have not gone beyond disease. I'm of the nature to uh, get old and death, aging and death. I have not be- gone beyond aging and death. And everything dear and delightful to me will change and vanish. And the fifth one is, I'm, everyone is the owner of their kama, the architect of their kama, born of their kama. Everything that they do, good or bad, they'll be the heir of their actions. And so, this is also part of that reflection on the Dhamma, uh, to help to see the, the, the reality and truth of those things. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's morbid. What do you want to think about that? You know, let's think about wine and parties and, you know, super yachts and whatever. I don't, you know. But uh, anyway, so we, we think about those things because those things affect us every single day. But yet uh, people, uh, they, they like to create and live in an illusion that uh, uh, 
of those that those things don't exist. Anyway, so the contemplation of uh, impermanence and, and suffering and the no self. We've talked about that a little bit. We're going to go into it more even later about the idea of no self. Um, but the fact that there's no permanent entity here that actually owns or controls anything. Even your own mind. You don't really own it or control it. Although we think we do, but that is also kind of an illusion. Now we can manage it to a certain extent, but we don't know what is deep, deep in our unconscious mind. And no matter what you try to do, we don't know when a big lump of comma is going to explode like a volcano into, into the life and, and cause us some kind of a, a suffering. So that is sort of the one of the meanings of uh, the no self. That uh, you know, even this body. And the, the Buddha gave a very nice uh, little description. He said, you know, if this body was yourself, if you were the owner of this body, you should be able to say, "Body, don't get sick." Can you do that? Or body, don't get a disease. Or body, never grow old. Or body, don't die. Can you do that? You can have a wishful thinking that you're not, but, you know. Uh, so, you know, in order to say you're the owner of anything, you should have absolute control over that. But people are not. People are not even in control of their bank accounts or their stock market because that could also be wiped out in a flash due to so many things you already know about. Uh, and this body, our, our relatives, our loved ones, and everything else. So these are all things that are aspects of you know, the contemplation about uh, impermanence. Uh, the suffering and no self. Of course, everybody generally kind of you know understands that, but I wanted to go into uh, even even a deeper level of the, the meaning of impermanence. Now, you know, if you talk about impermanence to the average person, let's say you you knock over a glass of milk on a table and. It spills all over and the glass breaks and you say, ah, oh, impermanent. Oh, or even if somebody dies, you say, ah, oh, impermanent. Oh, or an old tree dies and falls down. Oh, so that's what's called external impermanence. Uh, and actually in the Dhamma, it's very interesting, the Dhamma you know, is very profound. And there's always two aspects of Dhamma. There's external Dhamma, or the external realities, and then there's the internal uh, realities. Uh, like the truth of suffering in the external world, but in the internal world on a subtler level, there's the internal world of, of, of suffering. In impermanence. So, 
uh, you know, and, and coming to this body, because actually part of Dhamma contemplation, or mindfulness of the body, we've already talked about uh, being mindful of the postures, mindful of your movements, mindfulness of breathing. All of these helps to get the attention kind of to the uh, surface of the body. So if you want to climb a mountain, what's the first thing you got to do? You have to get to the base of the mountain, right? So you have to arrive at the base of the mountain. Then you start climbing up. So we're talking about climbing the mountain of wisdom. And so we have to arrive at the base of the mountain. That means the body. It means the present moment. Because that's the entry point, at least for most uh, people, uh, for developing that kind of, you know, insights. So what we've been doing so far is trying to get our attention at least, you know, reel it in like reeling in a fish because our mind is always swimming away and we have to reel it back. Oh, yes. Sitting, sitting, bring it back. Thinking, thinking, let go of the thoughts, come back. Pain, pain, let go of the thought, pain, you know, come back to the present moment. You sleep, you sleep, you wake up, come back to the present moment. So just feeling the, sort of the external body. And then the next phase is getting under the skin to feel the internal body. Now when we see the external body, we might not see impermanence is not really that clear until you reach 40 years old, right? Then you, that first gray hair comes in or your eyes start to, you know, going bad. So the, you know, only over a period of five or ten years, you gradually see uh, you know, subtle changes going on, right? Skin starting to get more wrinkly and so on. But under the skin, impermanence and change is going on all the time. And that's why the, the next level of mindfulness of the body, once you've contemplated the external body, uh, is getting under the skin to feel uh, the vibrational body, or what are called the four elements. The body is just comprised of the four elements that are constantly changing. But I, I, I like to call it the vibrational body, the vibrations and sensations that the, that the body is basically uh, comprised of. And... You know, we see this body as being something solid when we look at it from the outside. But, you know, any biologist or scientist will tell you that the body is just a, you know, constant changing uh, process. You know, this body is made up of billions of cells. And cells are made up of what? I don't know how many in each cell, but let's say, you know, lots of molecules. 
And molecules are even made up of what? Atoms. Atoms are made up of what? Electrons. Ah, electrons. Electricity. Einstein's theory of relativity. That this body is essentially, when you break it down, just electricity. Because the number of electrons going around an atom de determines what kind of material properties it's going to have. And then when you pack millions of atoms together, you get a molecule. Millions of molecules together, you get a, a cell. Millions of cells, and then you wind up with something that looks and feels solid. But when you dissect it and break it down, basically it's just energy. It's constantly changing. And that's, you know, quantum theory. Uh, and even scientists recognize that, but they never really talk about that in terms of practical application and so on. Uh, <clears throat> and so, you know, it is said that every cell in the body, the, the, the oldest living cells in the body live only a maximum of seven years. That all these billions of cells in this body would have changed, you know, in seven years. So you have a totally new body. So if you're 49 years old, you know, you've had seven bodies already. So that's the meaning of change and impermanence, is underneath the skin this process is constantly uh, going on, but we, we never see it. And so that's the next stage of vipassana, or the, the, the first stage of developing deeper uh, insight into impermanence is learning to feel the body is just a mass of changing you know, sensations and basically kind of just uh, energy sensations. And, and then that's one of the categories of mindfulness of the body, seeing the body is just four elements. In this body there's earth element, fire element, water element, uh, heat element, and even space element. But these elements, essentially, what they are, are just vibrations. I like to call them earth vibration, water vibration, uh, heat vibration, movement vibration. Because that's what you feel. When you feel the body, that's what you're feeling. You know, the, the, the sensation of hardness or solidity, the earth element. Or you're feeling some heat, the heat element. You're feeling movement, you know, the air element moving. Or even the water element, you've got tears coming down or sweat. And so you train yourself to see the body as, oh, it's just four elements. But then even the elements can be broken down into, they're just, again, cells, molecules, atoms, and electricity. Uh, And you can actually feel that when you contemplate. And so that can actually be taken up as an actual contemplation in the vipassana. Again, that's a kind of a, the, that second level of wisdom, the wisdom of reflection. And it's the scientific uh, uh, process that I mentioned before. You know, that's what the Buddha did. He sat down and he looked down 
through the microscope and that's what he felt. The body is just a mass of changing uh, energy vibrations. <clears throat> and so, uh, once, a per once you've gotten you know, some mindfulness and concentration and got centered in the body, again, that's the next step, so to speak. People are asking, you know, what should I do next? Watching the breath. Okay. What's next is you go into the body. Having got centered in the body, then you actually go deeper into it. And seeing how every square inch of the body is just nothing but change in vibrations. And so it breaks down the idea that of this uh, sort of solid body. Uh, of course, this is you know, occurring within the mind. So, and I've already been you know, hinting or suggesting to try to feel the vibrations in the body, and especially after yoga, you, know, you can feel the kind of pulsations and other little sensations and just feel all those vibrations and so on. But you know, when you develop enough mindfulness and concentration, then actually it can uh, uh, occur that way in the mind. Or you can be meditating and contemplating that, but at a certain point, the feeling of the hard, solid feeling of the body may actually kind of just start dissolving. And you can actually get to a point where you feel like you don't even have a body anymore. There's just sensations that are kind of moving around, but the idea or the the shape of a solid body dissolve. And that's a very liberating experience because all the pains that would have been in it also disappear. But anyway, that's just an example of, uh, that's the direct kind of, <coughs> the direct kind of uh, meditation wisdom, that third level of wisdom, uh, where the mind opens up and actually transforms itself into the wisdom. It assumes that wisdom instead of just talking about impermanence or talking about no self, the mind actually transforms in that and you actually experience uh, those momentary experiences. So, because uh, that's what we're going to, you know, kind of be doing. Uh, uh, you know, in the next uh, meditation or so, going through that. But it depends on you know each person. Uh, d depends on each person's level of mindfulness and concentration. But anyway, that's the the next uh, meaning of impermanence. First, you see how uh, you know all the sensations in the body are constantly uh, changing. But then also your thoughts. Uh, and reactions that everything is, is, is changing. And again, as I mentioned before, that's the, you know, that's the, the start of real vipassana meditation, is directly uh, tuning into the uh, impermanence, the, the flow of impermanence. But it starts with the body, then it, you uh, experience that 
the sensations and the thoughts and the uh, perceptions that go with it. And you can also, in the, when you're contemplating impermanence, you can see how when the mind tries to stop that impermanence, that suffering arises, uh, you know, immediately when you try to stop that uh, change or you try to resist it by saying, I don't like it and I want to get away from it or I want to stop it and keep it. Uh, Like say, okay, you might be sitting very comfortably and be attached to that comfortable feeling then all of a sudden the pain comes up. And you can immediately see how the mind, you know, doesn't want to let go of that comfortable feeling and now is being tormented by, you know, some painful feeling. In the body as well as the mind, you might be experiencing some mental comfort also. And then something triggers off uh, some unpleasant uh, mental experience. And then you... You know, you don't want to accept that change and resist it, so you you struggle. So, actually, vipassana meditation is is opening up to the flow of impermanence and to the flow of sensations. And basically, everything is just a sensation. This is also a very interesting and profound uh, uh, aspect of, of wisdom that all we can directly experience through the senses are vibrations. Take, for example, now, just for, just for a little uh, experiment, okay? Just cl- close your eyes now. Just gently close the eyes and just focus where your buttocks press the seat. Now, what do you actually feel there? Can anybody say what they felt? Did you feel your buttocks? Right. So that's what you actually feel. But even that is just a vibration. So you even break it down further. What you feel is a vibration of a certain intensity, density, and so on. Through the nervous system, that's right. The same way you feel the clothing touching your skin. That's just you know friction of the clothes rubbing against the skin, but it produces a vibration. But then we identify that vibration as being a certain object. But that's your mind thinking. That's not the direct experience. So Vipassana meditation is actually aimed at getting to the actual raw original experience of what is coming through the senses, not what our mind is creating. Uh, and 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 that that uh, you know necessitates or you know having developed a certain level of mindfulness and in awareness, but that's part of the contemplation. Uh, so next time you're you're meditating, 
And you know, you're feeling different parts of the body, just think, oh, it's this vibration. You know, when you say your fingers are touching together, you know, it's just vibrations. That the memory is remembering this particular vibration belongs to my fingers. Or this particular vibration is my toe. Or this vi- particular vibration is the clothing rubbing on my shoulder. Or this particular vibration is a bellyache or something in your eye. Uh, and so it becomes very interesting when you, you start uh, cultivating this type of uh, understanding. Uh, because at a certain point, then when that understanding is cultivated, then it leads to, it can lead to that actual uh, momentary experience where the body is actually experienced as just uh, a bag of empty vibrations. Because that is created in the mind. And that's the meaning that the mind creates everything. We're creating the world out of just vibrations. It's the mind that's creating the idea of the world of objects and myself within those objects and the past and future related to those objects. It's all created within the mental process. Uh, and that's one of the meanings of the, you know, the the Sanskrit word maya, the things were illusion, or also of uh, no self. But uh, hope I'm not uh, speaking over your heads here. But uh, I just realized that the, the retreat's one day shorter than I thought it was. <laughs> Time is slipping away. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so this idea of vibrations can be not only the body but it also includes sounds and smells and tastes and even our thoughts. So when you hear a sound, normally you say, I'm hearing a bird, I'm hearing the teacher talking, I'm hearing a door slamming. No, you're, you're imagining those things. What you're hearing is sound vibrations, right? But normally we don't, we don't think that way. We think we're hearing an object. Now, of course, there is an object. We'll give you that. There is an object, but again, it's the way our mind is uh, developing that, producing that within the mind, and then we get attached to it. And that's why I've mentioned several times, when you hear sounds, just make a note of hearing, hearing. Don't say, oh, that person's talking. No, it's just hearing, hearing. Or smelling, smelling. Maybe somebody lets some bad air out the backside, and you know you're sitting there meditating nicely, and all of a sudden you know, then you start projecting. Who did that? Who did it? It's just smelling, smelling. Then you have no problem. <laughs> or you know, you, some taste that comes into your uh, mouth is just uh, tasting, tasting. Seeing, seeing. Also, when you look up here. All you're seeing, all that's coming through your eye is color in a certain shape that strikes the retina. Any eye doctor can tell you that. And the mind is what creates the image out of it and then gives meaning to that image from your past experiences. 
and then affects your mind with either attachment, aversion, whatever. And so this is the way you contemplate the Dhamma. This is Vipassana contemplation that you can use as first intellectually, even while you're sitting there, you can kind of talk yourself through that. Sounds reasonable. Mm -hmm. Cool. (laughs) And so it works like that. But if you don't have anything to think about, the mind just starts thinking about, you know, sports and kings and queens and Donald Trump and all this other rubbish. Excuse me. (laughs) But, you know, worldly talk. So you have to have some amount of Dhamma knowledge as a repertoire in your mind so that you have something to then direct your attention to. That's called directed meditation. And that's also part of uh, the seventh, second factor of enlightenment, investigation of Dhamma, uses this type of analytic investigation, which might start as intellectual uh, concepts, but then as you hold your attention there, you start to understand the subtler the meanings of that. And then at some point down the road, when the conditions are right, uh, you might have this you know, opening of of the mind into you know intuitive uh, insights, so that's that's really the practice of, uh, of vipassana meditation follows that uh, you know development. I'm just uh, saying that there that because you know there should never be a dull moment. There should never be a time when you're sitting there. Uh, what's next? Or uh, or go to sleep. You go to sleep because you have nothing good to think about. Your mind gets tired of hearing all the same old rubbish going through your mind. So it wants to turn off that. Or, you know, it just gets again carried away by un, unprofitable or un, uh, unnecessary type of guilt, worry, remorse, and fear type of... Uh, greed and hatred types of uh, thoughts and emotions. So you, you give it something that exciting to think about, then it gets excited. Not excited in a you know kind of a real excited way, but it gets an interest. And that's the third factor of enlightenment, the enlightenment factor of joy, or maybe it's the fourth one. Anyway. That means interest. You get interested in the topic because you're... You're starting to see see some stuff that you hadn't understood before. So again, it's like the scientific experiment. You know, the scientist. When he starts to do his experiment, he gets excited, and he, and he, you know, he starts to you know put two and two together, and he, he sees something new happening, and like he's 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 on the track now to find a cure for some disease, right? And, and so he's to stay up, you know, don't get tired because he wants to see what's around the next corner. So in, in Vipassana meditation, there's always something new coming around the corner in terms of uh, body sensations, even sounds. We don't, we don't know what's going to occur. That's the thing. We never know what is going to happen around us. We could start a meditation, right? And it would be perfectly quiet, hardly any things. And 
And, you know, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you know, a bunch of birds starts uh, chirping or frogs start croaking or gunshots may go off. We can't control that. But it definitely affects our mind. And then we can, ah, what's the Dhamma got to say about this? All right, yeah, just hearing, yeah, it's just hearing, hearing, right? It's no gunshots, it's just hearing, it's just sound vibration. So don't worry about the gunshots until a bullet comes through the window, hits, hits Bhante in the head. <laughs> no. uh, so it's very interesting once you start to, uh, you know, contemplate the Dhamma, uh, it becomes very interesting. The whole body and mind becomes your uh, focus. But again, you first need to get some level of uh, centeredness and calmness of mind. Otherwise, the mind can get too excited and and get off balance uh, also. So that's why we usually spend the first couple of days trying to get, get some initial centeredness and, and concentration and also the you know concentration there's different meanings of the word concentration now if I just say out there okay, okay concentration or your ordinary meaning of it you know most people would think it means just focusing on one object and just trying to focus on that and, and uh, you know kind of forget about everything else. Is that kind of an idea most people have about concentration? Is it? Yes, no, maybe so. Uh, Or like, you know, a cat focused on a mouse. Really concentrated. Now that is one form of concentration. But it's not necessarily the form of concentration that we use in Vipassana meditation. I like to call it floating concentration. It means it's, uh, you know, it comes from the word one-pointedness, in the moment. So whatever arising in the moment, you're aware of that. But then that thing vanishes, and then there's something else arising, and the mind is aware of that. And then that vanishes, and then there's something else arising, and the mind is, the mind is basically in the present moment. So when the mind comes to rest in the present moment, then that's a state of concentration. That means it's not being distracted by the hindrances. The hindrances have been suppressed, and the mind is resting in the present moment. That's the ekagata, mind gone to one. It's not one object. It means one, the present moment. It's resting in the present moment. And things are arising and vanishing but the mind is not moving. Objects are arising and vanishing, but awareness is not is is resting there in the moment. So that is what's called vipassana concentration, as opposed to shamatha concentration. Uh, this form of concentration is vipassana concentration, sometimes called vipassana jhana, uh, and that's the kind of concentration where we try to cultivate course, in, in the, the Vipassana uh, meditation. So, anyway, I think uh, that might be 
enough for this uh, uh, Dhamma talk. And again, if you have any questions about uh, any of that, you can write them down for this evening's uh, questions and answers uh, session. Again, just taking off from where I left off there, let's uh, just for a moment just kind of straighten up the body and take a couple of deep breaths, come back to ground zero, buttocks pressing the seat to that one point. 